Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Hey, Sammy, welcome back. Hey, Monica. Today, I wanted to talk about grounding. I've been interested in it lately. In part, I've been doing a yoga practice with a friend of mine, a daily yoga practice, Yoga with Adrian. Love her. She's great, right? And she's out of Austin, Texas, so a local for me. Oh my gosh, you guys should hang out. <laughs> I'm like hoping to bump into her at Whole Foods or something, but it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> so between the yoga practice and then also working with clients, people who have persistent pelvic pain, I've really become fascinated with being in our body and grounding is sort of the word for that. And I hope that today we can talk about grounding practices, how that shows up with our patients and even ourselves. Yeah, that sounds like a great and very useful topic for those highly anxious patients that we have all encountered. And for ourselves. Definitely. Actually. <laughs> um, primarily for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of a definition of grounding, one of the definitions that I encountered online was that when we're grounding, we're directing our attention towards what's happening in the present moment. So pretty simple definition. Mm-hmm. It's being in the moment, being there, being in your body. I think that's pretty much what we're talking about when we define grounding for all of you listeners out there. Right. And I wanted to read a quote from a book called Language of Emotions by Carla McLaren around this topic because it really honed in for me how important this is in pelvic health. So it says, our minds and spirits can be just about anywhere while our emotions are often ignored or trapped in the amber of unexamined issues, but our bodies can only be here now. Our bodies cannot move backward into the past, and they cannot run into the future. Our bodies can only live in the present moment. Therefore, if we can center our attention and our bodies, we'll be here now. It's as simple as that. However, centering our attention and our bodies is uncommon in our culture. The body isn't usually seen as something to celebrate. It is often treated as something to master, escape, tolerate, or subdue. And that concludes the quote. I also think for people with pain, their body is something that they feel has betrayed them. Their body is not a safe place to live because of their experiences. Their body is uncomfortable. Their body is hard to read. It's uncertain. What triggers the pain? When is the pain triggered? What gets it better? What makes it worse? Why am I having it? Their body becomes... Rather than their team member, their source of interacting with the world, their body becomes something to resent or rebel against or ignore. A lot of the times I find that people are ignoring their bodily signals. Yeah. People that I've observed fall into one of two camps. Either they're in that major catastrophizing zone where they're not necessarily thinking about their body as in, I'm here, I'm in my body, I'm feeling what I'm feeling. They're thinking about it in this catastrophic way. Like, what does this pain mean for me? What is this going to mean for my life? And they're going a million miles an hour. They're thinking so far into the future. They're not there in the moment. Or you get those people who just want to distract and get away and they're separate. They're like, this isn't happening to me. 
I think that both of those types of people would really benefit from that mindfulness of being grounded, being in your body, being aware of these signals. So I think it could be really useful for any of our patients. Absolutely. Grounding has so many benefits, relaxation, better focus, better problem solving, because when we're here and we're now, we shift out of fight or flight mode, right? So we switch from our old lizard brain back to our frontal lobe and we have access to all these great tools at our disposal. It actually improves our self-awareness and our bodily awareness. And I think that rather than having this myopic thinking of what's going on with the pain or what will happen next, we can really flow with whatever's to come. We can get curious about the pain or even accept that we could still do things when we have pain. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And to your point, when we're oriented to the present, we are by definition not catastrophizing, worrying, speculating, or avoiding anything. And letting go of all of those cognitive patterns, that really enables us to participate in rehab, I'll say physical medicine, pelvic PT, any of it, to a deeper extent. And when we participate more and we're here for the present moment, I think amazing things can happen in our partnership. I agree. It's really challenging with those people who are so out of their bodies to draw them back in. I think that's an area that I struggle with a lot because you have these people who you're trying to get them to feel something in the pelvic floor. You're trying to get them to feel how to relax their pelvic floor or to perform a bulge of their pelvic floor. And it's tough when you get that person who you're asking, oh, did you feel that you relaxed when you took that breath in? Did you feel this? Did you feel that? And they're saying, no, 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 I didn't feel that. And aside from those people who have a true sensory deficit, maybe they're actually feeling physically where you're touching, but I think it's tough when you have somebody who is so distracted by all these exterior things that can't be there in that moment and just experience and be calm and present and go through the process with you. They seem like they want to rush ahead, and that's a challenging thing. I'm definitely excited to talk about ways to bring this into practice in a more practical sense. Yeah, definitely. You you hit the nail on the head with those patients. I can imagine working with a few people who really like just were the living example of, of what you're talking about. I think we can all picture that person. And my first thought with them is this type of person who isn't grounded, let's just say that if they're not grounded, the first place I want to start with them is some type of grounding exercise before I get into like all the correct ways to do something. And if someone is really ungrounded, or I think of it more as like they're not in their body, like they're almost floating somewhere above their body anxiety-wise, that's like my image of them. When someone's not in their body, telling them how to do an exercise with all the cues of how to do it right is honestly the fastest way to keep them out of their body. (laughs) It's so backwards. I can just imagine my first few years as a PT and I just thought I needed to give them more and more cues. And it was like, rotate your hip this way and you should feel it here and lift your leg like this. And the bird dog is always like the quintessential exercise I go back to trying to teach people all these perfect cues for doing it. And now what I found in my practice is that actually it's not about doing anything correct and it's about doing things slow, very intentional. And 
letting go of a lot of my preconceived notions about what is right in the movement, but also we're not getting caught up in what they're afraid of. Because this is usually the person who is giving you like 75 cues of what they feel. And you're like, do this. And like, but I noticed da 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 and oh and now da 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 and you're like, okay, okay, hold on. And and then my other pitfall was trying to explain to them why they feel all those things. Have you ever done that? Mm-hmm. And so they're like describing 12 things and you're like, that makes sense because da da and 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 it's like, don't worry about it. You know what that means? They're living in their mind. You're speaking to their mind. Their body has still not done the exercise. They yeah. still haven't dropped their awareness down into what you're doing. So I don't know. Do they need to know like every reason? That's a tough one though. Because I, I feel like with those people, like how do you how do you skirt that without making them feel dismissed? That's where I struggle with that one is if they're in their head so much and they're giving you all these 50 million things, I don't want to just be like, don't worry about it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that's that's a tough line to walk. What do you do with those people? What do you say? I say, okay. I say okay a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I, and I try not to have a tone to it because you could be like, okay. Or you could be like, okay, yeah, okay. And that's, you know, that's a caricature of what we would say. But I'll be like, okay. So I want you to close your eyes and breathe a little deeper, you know. Or honestly, if they're just going, sometimes I realize that they don't really need me to say anything back. It's like my anxiety meets their anxiety in that moment. <laughs> I am like, oh my gosh, they're noticing all these things. Yeah. Sometimes I I don't even say anything. I'll like maybe look at them and nod or I'll be like, okay, we'll come back to that or let's focus on. And so I'm trying to redirect them maybe. That's another one I've used. Yeah. And, and usually I'm trying to give them different cues. Yeah. And I find with those people too, I have to be careful about my questioning. So for example, if I'm trying to get somebody to do some sort of transversus abdominis contraction or something, and I want them to do it a certain way, a lot of times in the past I've asked, what are you feeling? You know, and it's so broad. You ask, what are you feeling? And they're like, I don't know, like I'm feeling my abs squeeze. It's like very vague. And so sometimes what I'll ask them is, do you feel like you were able to breathe during that one? Or I'll ask something very pointed and focused. So I'm directing their attention to something specific that I want them to notice about the exercise versus just this huge broad question. And that way I'm filtering out the extra signal and noise because if they're like, oh, I felt that in my butt cheeks and I felt it here and I felt it there. And you're like, okay, but what do you feel here? You know, you can kind of just move it over. Yes. So I found those pointed questions to be helpful with those people too. Absolutely. So I think to your point, like the breathing is probably the best tool, in my opinion, for us as pelvic therapists to help people become more grounded. The breath work is so versatile, right? You can focus on the breathing as an exhale, which we all do with a Kegel to generate more power and better activation. And so that will also bring them back into their body. We can focus on the diaphragmatic breathing for relaxation And whenever I have people exercise, even with my orthopedic patients that I work with, I'll say, if you're holding your breath or if you notice you're not breathing, it's too challenging for you. And I'll just say what the modification would be. I don't tell them, you need to not do this. It's wrong. But I'll say, if you notice that you're holding your breath, then you could, if it's a wall sit, stand up more. Or you could reduce your range of motion. Or you could 
X, Y, and Z, like whatever the option is. And that's something I totally picked up from yoga because Adrian is always offering suggestions without ever saying, this is what you need to do. And I've really started translating that to the way I talk to my patients as well is not like you have to do it this way, but you know, if it's too easy, you could do this. And if it feels hard, you could try this. And they really seem to respond to that. People are able to do whatever feels good to them. And that's ultimately what I want. And what are you doing but creating more autonomy, right? You're giving them the progression that they can take home. If it starts to feel easy and they want to progress themselves, then yay, you gave them the option to do that. As an aside, that's a really smart idea like that. (laughs) Thanks. I also think that grounding is really important besides the exercise component for the emotional component that goes into our work because people will experience a variety of challenging emotions. I don't always want to say triggered, but they could be triggered. People could be re-experiencing their trauma or something like that. But more than that, people are confronting a lot of uncomfortable things with us. Sometimes even as seemingly basic as confronting what they haven't tried or what they haven't done yet. I think we can use breathing and grounding to help with those situations as well. I'm curious to explore a little bit more of the grounding in relation to patients who are triggered by an internal exam, for example, or somebody who has even something close to a panic attack. How would you apply this technique to somebody who is in more of that heightened emotional state? They're extremely upset. They're really out of sorts. How do you bring them back into their bodies at that stage? That's tough. I would encourage us to go back, anyone who's listening to episode eight with Christina Holland, because she talks a lot about not going to that place. So as much as we can, observing our patients so much that we can back off if something is too intense. And I would agree wholeheartedly with her. The longer I practice, I find that the less of those situations I'm caught in compared to earlier on. I think part of it is like your own awareness, right? Like you can see the signals happening sooner. But honestly, I don't think we can prevent everything from happening. And so it probably will occur. If that were to happen, I think the first thing I would do is pause and probably orient them to their breath. If they're crying a lot, similar, I'm here, it's okay, take your time, there's no rush. If someone's also having a panic attack, though, I can talk to them about the breathing, but I'm also going to want to get additional support. If I'm in an office with other patients that I have back-to-back or something, I need to get some admin support because I might need to be there for a while with the patient. So I think thinking through what in your practice makes sense, like who would you be able to rely on for support because we can't rush it. I think the hardest thing looking back at some of those clients is if someone is even really emotionally upset and then your session ends and it's like, okay, bye. Like I need the room for the next person. So you run over with them because obviously you're not going to kick them out, but what do you do with your next patient? I think that's a conversation everyone needs to have with whoever they work with of, can we reschedule the next person or let them know and then maybe reschedule the one after that. Something would probably need to change if you're experiencing this level of intense reaction. 
not everyone who cries requires you to like change your schedule. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. We might never see anyone then if that were the case, but you can tell when someone is like hyperventilating or they're having this huge response, you do need to have more of an emergency protocol. And then with them, I would think one, I need to stay calm. Two, I need to be with them, let them know that they're safe, try to bring them into their breathing, but also understand that it's okay not to take someone down from that response. I don't know about you, Sammy, but I I think most of us don't really have that kind of training. Yeah. Depending on what is happening with the person in front of you, have no shame. Call someone else in, even if it's another therapist to be in the room with you to say, hey, I need some help or an aide to be in there with you as well. Ideally, someone who, you know, is a little more seasoned to help you out. It's funny, after I asked this question and you were talking, I was thinking this isn't the type of patient that we would necessarily want to even apply grounding principles with. I think that's going to be so far beyond what we are trained to do as physical therapists that it's putting a lot of pressure on us to use skills that we don't have. What we need to do is recognize the signs of somebody not being grounded early and recognize the signs of anxiety, recognize those things early and stop the exam or stop whatever we're doing before it gets to that point. And that also speaks to trusting your instincts with people. As physical therapists, we're very confident in thinking that, okay, if somebody just had knee surgery and they can barely do a long arc quad and they tell you that they want to go back out and play basketball, you're going to be like, ooh, maybe not. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like we have those signs where we can recognize like this person's not ready for this thing. And I think that we miss some of those psychological do not pass go things. And so we don't have that, a lot of that training. And so it takes some time to recognize. But I think the more patients that you see, you'll start to get this feel for this person isn't ready for me to do this from an emotional perspective. They're not ready for X, Y, and Z. I'm going to try some other treatment modalities and see if we can train them, train their nervous system and get them ready to do that thing before we just throw them in the deep end or throw them on the basketball court, so to speak. Yeah, you bring up a great point about observing people. And what I've realized is that the essential step to helping someone else ground is learning how to ground yourself. And It's so easy for us to live in our heads while working with someone because we're trying to figure out, quote unquote, what's wrong. We're trying to figure out, quote unquote, how to fix it. We're trying to figure out if their presentation makes sense. Our work is really knowledge-based work. There's a lot that we have to do in our head. And I think for us, it's easy not to be in our body fully during a session. And so much of what has helped me is coming back to my body before sessions first off, get grounded before a visit. But second off, keep checking in with myself. And and I used to think like it had to be all about the patient. And in a way, I think that contributed to like constantly buzzing around them. If you can imagine a little bee that's just trying to figure out like (laughs) what this person needs. And when we do that, We can't connect with our instinct and our intuition, which you just spoke to. That kind of gut thing that says, "Mm, I don't know, or maybe we need to stop. Sometimes I think we don't have the I don't know, but we have the, ooh, maybe we shouldn't keep going. The something is wrong. And when we try to overcorrect for something being wrong, I think that's already an indicator that we missed it. If you find yourself doing that, you probably need to step back. 
rather than give five more cues on how to do something correctly, probably come back in and take a deep breath. Yeah. And I think grounding is like, if you are not centered, how are you going to teach someone else to be centered? Totally. (laughs) And I think that takes a lot of self-awareness. Gosh, it's amazing to start looking at these ways that you interact with patients as triggers, because I think it feels like a dirty word at first. You know, you're practicing and you react to things and you're like, why did that person upset me? Or why did that thing that they said make me feel so bad? And over time, I can start to put words to these things like, oh, if my patient tells me that they had a bad week, I internalize that's because I'm a terrible PT and I did something bad with them. And that's why I'm feeling super triggered and upset. And I need to take that step back and just listen to what they're saying and be there. First of all, the more that you can recognize those body signals in yourself of like, oh, my chest feels tight. I feel anxious. I feel like I want to fix this person. I'm feeling X, Y, and Z. Then you can take a step back after the session and start going, okay, why is it that thing triggered me? Mm. And then those are the times where you can start to catch yourself in the future. And at this point now, when I'm doing the subjective and I hear that sort of thing, I can be like, I'm sitting here, I'm curling my toes and my shoes and I'm feeling my feet on the floor. I can bring myself back in and then continue on with the session. The patient never even knows that I did that. But I think that process takes a while. It's like you have to do so many steps of self-reflection to even get there. For new clinicians, that's a really hard thing. That was a very painful lesson I had to go through slowly at first. Yeah. And you know what? I think everybody is grounded to a different level. So I'll say that. I think some of us maybe live more in our minds. And so we actually even need to practice this more. But there's probably some people out there who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like I'm (laughs) always in my body. I'm, I'm pretty much always paying attention to what my signals are. And we notice that with patients too, right? There's, we always talk about why patients are hard to treat, but I've also become curious with like, why are some people easy to treat? Is it just that they don't have these negative factors in air quotes? But actually the opposite is true. They have the inverse factor, right? So if somebody is hard to treat because they're catastrophizing, somebody else is easy to treat because they're present. They're aware. When you ask them what they feel in their body, this is the person who's like, I feel that my pain is worse when I bend forward and I feel a pulling in my low back. And you're like, that's awesome. I know what to do with that. Yeah. I was just thinking too, these patients that come in and they have so much data to give you, they want to give you all the things and all the observations and they're so in their heads about it. They're actually much less able to give you usable data. And with that patient that you described just now with the, you know, I noticed that when I bend forward, my back hurts. They're able to notice their body sensations Notice what the sensation is without attributing a bunch of other stuff to it and without adding a bunch of other emotional layers. And they're able to parse through the data a little bit more. And I think that knowledge of what your body is actually feeling in that moment allows you to change something. So that's the type of person who might go, it seemed like bending forward really hurt my back. So I tried bending backwards and it felt pretty good. So I did more of that. You know what I mean? Like, that's the type of person who's willing to experiment a little bit more, who's willing to work with things a little bit more, and they're not so rigid and so fearful. That's another awesome benefit of noticing those body sensations and just being in the moment without adding a bunch of other stuff onto it. Definitely. And I'm I'm intrigued by what you said, because I think you, you touched on a few different things, which is that some people come in with a lot of data. 
And there's a lot of reports and then there's a lot of data. And I think that they're two different things, mm, actually, yeah. because I worked with people in tech for a couple of years and they love data. And that did not mean <laughs> that they were not embodied, actually. But there are people who will come in and tell you so many things. And I think that's what you're like encapsulating is they're just giving you all of it. And then there's the other people who do really perceive their emotions to be a primary starting point for them. It's their primary way of getting data. You see this in Myers-Briggs profiles and, and other personality typing systems. And so they're more inclined to give you the emotional response and you're trying to get the objective <laughs> and it's so hard and you both need to meet in the middle. Yeah. Um and see that it's okay for them to have their emotional response to it. I think that's another part of grounding is accepting someone else's emotional response and not feeling like I need to fix it. I don't need to destroy their fear and never have them experience fear again. If I'm actually comfortable with their fear, if I'm centered and grounded as they're expressing fear to me and I react calmly and can talk about both the pros and the cons of their fear in that moment, or maybe ask them if they're comfortable reinterpreting that situation, they're going to learn so much more than if I tackle with the fear and I try to overcompensate. People's innate differences are so fascinating and understanding those differences and looking at them using the words pain catastrophizing, fear avoidance, really takes it away from the person. It creates this degree of separation. And that's what grounding does for us as well. We have a degree of separation between our emotions and where we presently are. And that allows us to pick a response rather than a reaction. And whether we're doing that for our own health or helping our patients learn to do it for themselves, it is absolutely a critical skill. I think especially when you work with persistent pain, you know, yeah. in varying degrees to all other diagnoses and issues. But I think that when you have someone with pain who's done it before, they've been to the PT, they've done all these other things, the embodying and grounding practices are so important and you need to pay attention because if people don't feel safe in their bodies and you're telling them you have to use dilators, it, it's too much. So I think this is where graded exposure will come in, but you have to be cognizant. You have to be paying attention to how they present, what they're saying to you, what they're saying actually means rather than the face value of what they're saying and respond from that place. So at this point, it seems like we've got a pretty good idea of who needs these grounding techniques. We, we can see that person in front of us. I think the next step is what are the techniques that you've found successful? So give me your favorites, Monica. You always have good stuff here. Thank you, Sammy. Okay. My favorite is for me as a provider, scrunching my toes in my shoes or at home. I don't wear shoes. I wear socks. So just scrunching my toes and being like, oh. and the moment you hear that sigh from yourself or someone else, it's all going to be okay. You just <laughs> came right back in. But that like, very visceral. So that's one. Two, if someone is really hyped up and they're not comfortable with breath work, then I like to orient to the present. So what day is it? What date is it? What time is it? 
what's the weather? Because when you're in the middle of an emotional storm, you're like, I don't know, the world is ending. It's all terrible. Ah. And then all of a sudden you're like, it's Thursday, March. Oh my God, what day in March? What year is it? (laughs) And so asking that. There's another technique where you do your different senses. And I think you're probably more familiar with me than that one. Like I know of it, but I don't tend to use that as much. I think primarily I use the feet. And then with my patients, I use the breath. And I think the the biggest thing is, am I grounded? And then if I'm grounded, I'm looking at them and then I can give them better cues. But I'm telling everyone that if you're holding your breath, you're doing too much. And I'm usually telling people to go a lot slower than they think they have to go. And I just say, go a little bit slower. Notice where you feel that comfortable discomfort of a stretch. And sometimes people are like, well, I feel sweaty when I try to do this stretch or it's so intense or like, I just can't. And I'm like, back off, do less, back off, do less, back off, do less. I think that's probably where I spend most of my No, there's two ways I spend most of my time with persistent pain. And one of them is you're doing too much. Back off. It's okay to back off. You're not hurting yourself. And the other way is it's okay to push yourself. You're not hurting yourself. (laughs) That's a fine line to walk, isn't it? It is. And sometimes it's both in the same session. So yeah, I think with patients, it's like breathing. My favorite is diaphragmatic breathing and prescribing passive stretching for the sense of breathing and being present. Not necessarily like, oh, I'm down training the pelvic floor with child's pose, but now I'm thinking I'm helping their nervous system. It's intentionally creating time for them to just breathe and settle. And that might be the only three minutes in their entire day where they're not running back and forth. And I used to not pick stretching for a long time because I thought it wasn't as effective. And I've actually added it back in for this other reason now. You know, um, if they're comfortable with yoga, I'm going to say that's the last one is I think a regular yoga practice. Personally speaking, I like cardio. I've always liked strength training. I can do both till kingdom come. But since starting yoga daily, I find that I live in my body in a completely different way. And I think because it's the one practice where you're so focused on your breath, you're so focused on your body, you're listening to what somebody is telling you or looking over. But with cardio, my brain can think about a million other things. With strength training, it's like when I'm not lifting and I'm resting between sets, what am I going to do later? What's this and what's that? And those practices do not do the same thing for me. That doesn't mean they won't do the same thing for other people. But I've truly found that yoga and yoga incorporates breath work. So the other piece would be like sitting and doing breath work. I am not a big fan of that myself, but that is just (laughs) personal preference. Um, (laughs) What about you, Sammy? What are the techniques that you've found really successful? I think for myself as the provider. So if I'm sitting there getting triggered by a patient, my first thought goes back to my posture. I'm a mega sloucher just in general. (laughs) It's like the worst thing for a PT to be, but I find myself slouching constantly. And I find that my posture also reflects my emotional state more than I would like to admit. So if I'm feeling anxious, I tend to be like curled inwards, like protective. I don't want you to know how I'm feeling because I'm anxious and it's this closed off posture. So I first just notice that and then I go, okay, sit up tall, pull the shoulders back, notice your posture and instantly you feel a little bit more open, a little bit more engaged, a little bit more 
confident. And so I think that's the first thing that I do to get back in my body. Also love the toe scrunching. I literally did that today. So I'm right there with you. And then I think from the patient side of things, I am really big on some of those progressive muscle relaxation techniques. Mm -hmm. So I've had a few patients who have expressed a little bit of anxiety during sessions and I'll literally just take them through the entire body. I'll be like, okay, let's scrunch our shoulders up, furrow the eyebrows together, clench the jaw and then relax it. I'm going head to toe and I can just tell that they're at first they laugh a little bit and I think it breaks the tension. And then by the end, I can tell that they're a little bit more settled. If they're laying on the table, they just look a little like heavier on the table. So I, I do like those a lot. I will say that Sometimes it feels awkward to me as a PT to be bringing these things into the room. Like It's a very uncomfortable space for me to be. And I'm Mm -hmm. challenging myself to do a little bit more of that with certain people. But as you had mentioned, there's the one with the five different senses. So they call it the 54321 method. So you start off with five things that you can see. So having them just look around the room and say, I see a red cup that the pens are sitting in. I see a white pelvis model. And then the next thing is for four things that you can feel. So they may feel the sensation of their feet on the mat. They may feel the softness of the pillow that their head is on. And then the next is three things that you can hear. So they may hear somebody chatting in the distance in the hallway, some buzzing of a fan in the room. And then you ask them to identify two things that they can smell, which... Hopefully there's not a lot of strong smells in your office, but (laughs) who knows? And then the last thing is one thing that you can taste. So Mm. I sometimes will just modify this and have them just look around the room and tell me, you know, tell me three things you can see and two things you can hear or something like that just to make it a little quicker. But I've been playing around with that one a little bit more recently and modifying it for myself. Yeah, I know when I first started cueing people for deeper breathing and progressive muscle relaxation, I was like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> am I, you know, I, I, I felt so alternative, yeah. I guess. And it was definitely awkward for me. And now I'm like, this is mind body medicine. Yeah. This is exactly what is needed. And this wasn't really taught to me. Maybe that's why I feel so awkward about it. It's it's not a stretch. It's not a strengthening exercise. It's not cardio. What is it? And I would say if you're billing this, neuromuscular re-education is one. I use therapeutic activity a lot. Me too. I was going to say that one. That's like my favorite. It also reimburses a little bit better. Bias towards that. I'm not committing billing fraud, but I do think that instructing someone in progressive muscle relaxation, I guess that would be Therax. If I'm teaching it as a as an exercise, if I'm going over these strategies, there's different ways to bill it. So definitely bill for your time and let go of the pressure that you have to have done a certain amount of things and visit. If you identify that this is important and you spend time on it, it's huge. And the more we help people feel safe in their bodies, the better they're going to do. Even if that doesn't mean like a full recovery in terms of zero out of 10 pain and a pain-free life, like it helps them start to access acceptance, curiosity, their self-efficacy, their autonomy. It is huge. And for you, I mean, it helps get you out of fixer mode. It helps get you comfortable. I don't don't know about you, but I find that the sessions that I do more things, I'm getting less done. 
Mm. When I'm in that fixer mode, I'm like, let's do this stretch and that stretch and let's stretch this thing and let's talk about this breathing technique and this hands-on technique. And I've literally done so many things. None of it's been high quality. And what I've been missing is that experience. I have been trying to think of a word to encapsulate my goals for practice right now. And my word is experience. I want Mm. my patients to come out having experienced a thing and not learned an exercise. Like, I don't care if they learned how to stretch their hip flexors. They can look that shit up online. You know what I mean? That's not valuable. What I want them to go away with is an experience of having learned something about their condition, having learned something about what it feels like in their body. I want them to go away being like, oh, that's what it feels like to do this. Oh, that's what's going on when I feel X, Y, and Z. That's so much more valuable and impactful than being like, you need to do child's pose stretch for one minute and diaphragmatically breathe. And they might be going home going, why the hell am I doing this? Whereas if you really take that time and have them experience what it feels like to breathe deeply enough that they feel a slight pelvic floor drop, that's the person who's going to go home and be like, oh, now I know what it feels like to let my pelvic floor release a little bit with my breathing. And so I find that counterintuitively, the sessions where I feel like I'm not doing that much, like I'm writing my note up later and I'm like, what the hell did I even do? Those are the sessions I feel really good about because I feel like I did a lot of mm-hmm. of experiential learning, even though on paper, it's hard to write that all out. Yeah. Uh, it's so cool how you're coming up with a word for your practice. Well, Sammy, this was a cool conversation about grounding. I'm excited that we got to share ideas about what's worked for us. And I'm thinking maybe I'll do some progressive muscle relaxation tonight to fall asleep. So (laughs) as always, great conversation and stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.